Thank you so much for having me this morning. What an absolute treat to be with you. When, uh, when you have missionaries come and visit, I'm sure they kind of come with some of the cultural dress or cultural food from the places they're from. And so being from England, I've brought some of our weather with us uh, this morning. So I hope you enjoy some of that to know what it's like to be a, a Christian in where I'm from. Uh, and it, it raining in England is one of the great certainties in life. Uh, but the, there's a phrase that we all know that there are two certainties in life. If I say one, you'll probably say the other. That's how well known it is around the world. There's two certainties in life, death and... Thank you very much. Death and taxes. Two certainties in life, death and taxes. And I'm sure we tend to want less of both. There's a story of a woman uh, down at Cottesloe Beach who for some reason had swallowed a five-cent coin and the crowd around them had got paralyzed with fear of not quite knowing what to do and eventually someone comes up behind this choking lady who'd gone from kind of pinkish to red to gray to now white as oxygen was being deprived of her, uh, in her body and uh, choking on this five-cent coin. Eventually this man runs up, performs the Heimlich maneuver and out rolls the five-cent coin onto the pavement and uh, everyone kind of claps and things like that and the lady who <gasps> gasped air for the first time says thank you so much are you a, are you a doctor a, a nurse a paramedic and the uh, man says no I'm, I'm not a doctor a nurse or a paramedic he bends down picks up the five cent coin and goes I'm the tax man and he walks off and, <laughs> and, and away he goes see there's two, two certainties in life death and taxes but the question is, are there only two certainties in life, or is it possible that there are, there's a third, maybe even a fourth? Is there a third certainty in life, which is that life is going to be hard? And if life is going to be hard, there will be wounds and words and a world that hurts. And when life hurts... There's the wounds themselves, but there's also, for the Christian, the doubts and the questions. Is God there? Is God fair? Does God care? Well, the certainty of life hurting comes into a direct head-on collision in Romans chapter 8 with another certainty. And Paul, the great preacher and missionary to the ancient Roman world, is trying to get to Rome, to the church that's already there, who's never met so that he can then launch into Spain and, and uh, bring the gospel to them. For, but for that to happen, for that partnership to be uh, good, they've got to have the same goal, the same vision, the same gospel. So Paul has been outlining through Romans the whole thing so far. What are the essentials, the core, the heart of the Christian faith? And he's described how we're all enemies of God, reconciled through Christ. We're all sinners, forgiven through Christ. We're all in Adam, united now to Christ. We're all unbelieving, but Christ trusted God for us. And all of that discovery of Romans 1 to 7 is summed up and wrapped up in Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter. And within the wrap-up of chapter 8, Paul is wrapping up. He's summing up his summary. And it, uh, we know that from verse 31. Have a look down at verse 31. If you've closed it, 919 in the Bibles and the seats... 919. What then are we to say about these things? It's like when the preacher says, and finally, only three minutes later to say, and to conclude. It's in that kind of, trying to keep you on your toes. As he sums up his summary of the gospel. And he wants to get to the heart of the issue, which is that if God loves us, like really loves us, 
We know that because his son died in our place, taking on the wrath of God at the rebellion and brokenness in the world. He really loves us, but life is going to be hard. Two great certainties. Alongside death and taxes, God loves us and it's going to be hard. So can anything separate us from that love of God? Can anything separate us from that love of God? And for that, he's going to ask three questions. He's going to think through three different areas. He's, kind of, he's got a who. Can someone accuse us? And that will separate us from the love of God. And a what? Can something defeat us? Perhaps a sin in, in our past. Can that defeat us and separate us from the love of God? And a when? Can suffering separate us? When something bad happens, can that separate us from the love of God? Because if someone, if something, if some, this suffering can separate us from the love of God in Christ, then we'll live in fear. In fear that, that, that someone, something, some moment can destroy all that the Christian faith claims to be true. But if nothing, no one, no event can separate us, then boy, we're in for a life of boldness. We're in for quite a life, quite a death even, quite a love that God offers us. We'll unpack these three questions one by one. Firstly, uh, who can accuse us? Can someone accuse us? Paul asked that question in the second half of verse 31. Have a look down. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can someone come and be against us? If God is on our team, who is on the other team that has a fighting chance? Can Satan work against us? No. Can a family member be so vicious and undermining and frustrated at our faith that we're separated from God's love? No. Can a non-Christian spouse wear us down so that we're separated from God's love? No. Can someone accuse us? No. But what proof of this outrageous claim? Christianity is often criticized as, as just being pie in the sky when you die. But if there's proof of that pie in the sky, I want some of it. I want the pie. So what's the proof? Verse 32. He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not with him also give us everything else? God is for us, and we know this because God was against him. The basis of God being for us is that he was against his own son. Someone cannot accuse us because someone else has died for us. And if God does that to get us on, our, on his team, surely he won't also give us everything else we need. If he's done the big thing of the cross to get us on his team, he'll do the smaller thing of everything else necessary to get us across the line through death into eternal life. If he's done the big thing, surely he'll do the smaller thing. It's a bit like a girl, uh, the week of her wedding day, this bride who's staying with her family again as the, uh, in the build-up to the wedding, sees on the, on the side counter the bill for the flowers and goes in tears to her father and says, Daddy, I've just seen the price of the flowers. If it costs that much, I, I, I just don't think we should go through with it all. It's so expensive. 
And the father smiles with tissues to help the girl who's in tears and says, Honey, your mother was in labor for 36 hours and she almost died through blood loss to have you be here today. The first three years of your life, we hardly slept. But there's nothing in comparison to the sleepless nights when you were a teenager. When we used to pretend to be okay when you'd walk in at 1 a.m., even though we'd spent the last three hours praying, begging that you'd be safe. It has cost us everything to get you educated, uh, to, to give you the chance to enjoy your love of dance. Remember that trip we took to Sydney? Remember when Granny died, the flat she lived in? Now that was sold so that you can go, to, go, go through university. If you think the flowers are the thing that's going to stop you, you have no idea what it's cost up till now. And so if God has given, has not withheld his son Jesus, what on earth makes us think that someone could accuse us in this last little stretch? Of course not. God wouldn't waste the death of his only son only for someone to come and accuse us and us not make it to the end. Because the cross, it may look like cross died at the hands of Judas for money or at the hands of the Romans for power. Or Pilate for, the, for, for fear, or the crowds for envy. But the cross happened because God didn't withhold his son for love. And to make sure we make it to the end, he gives us everything else we need. And I just wonder if the everything else we need is the Holy Spirit. That chapter 8 has already talked about extensively. Someone cannot accuse us because God the Father is for us. God the Son died for us and God the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So no one has the right and is right to accuse us. But maybe this whole Christian thing, this whole God loves me thing falls apart, not because there's someone to accuse, but because something can defeat us. So secondly, a what that Paul has a question for. Can, can something defeat us? Can something in our past harm us? The Sherlock Holmes author, Sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he, he apparently in the Victorian age, he loved practical jokes. And so uh, the rumour has it, stories have it, that he wrote to 12 of his closest friends, just a little short note, anonymously, posted it through their letterbox. It, the note just said this, flee, all is discovered. And, and the story has it that within 24 hours, all 12 friends had left England to go to France for it to uh, die down. Because a guilty conscience is a powerful thing. It can cause alarm. It can, it can fear. Guilt can remain embedded in the soul such that we pass it on to the next generation. But for the Christian, is a guilty conscience right? Is it necessary? Is it true? Is it something that can defeat us? This is what Paul is asking in verse 33. 33. He's already asked, look, is there someone? But then he's kind of saying, well, could someone actually bring something against us? Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. What charge is there that someone might be able to bring? What guilt still remains? What sin can defeat us? What, what moment in time still... What mistake that we've made that we've buried deep inside... We may still hold that charge against ourselves. We may still think that sin can defeat us. But God doesn't. 
because verse 33, he's the one who justifies. He's the one who not just declares us innocent, but right before him. So he doesn't hold anything against us. So who are we to think better than him? No one can whisper anything negative in God's ear about us. Because this is my great fear in being a Christian, is that there might be someone whispering in God's ear, did you just just see what he did? you, You can read those thoughts of his, can't you? How can you forgive a muppet like that? Are you serious? He's going to go to eternal life with you. But Paul seems certain that something cannot defeat the love of God because verse 34, who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Jesus is the only one whispering anything in God the Father's ear. He's interceding for us. He's already at the right hand of God saying, you see the sin that Ed is doing? I've already died for that. And we have a deal in heaven which says we never punish the same sin twice. So there's no one to condemn because there's no thing to condemn. Nothing can defeat us. And it's not that we can hope for that verdict in the future now. It's that the verdict is now. This is not a statement of faith. It's a statement of fact. But it is only a fact for the Christian. Christ only died for us, intercedes for us, God's elect. There's no condemnation for us. So any here or any we know that aren't Christian, accessing this forgiveness, this freedom, this love, it's very simple. It's trusting Christ at the right hand of God, not yourself. For a clear conscience, for sins forgiven, for a fresh start, for an inseparable love. That's all that Christians have done, and that's all that Christians have done. But there's still the experience now of suffering in the present that makes this hard to trust. So thirdly, a when. Can suffering separate us? Can someone accuse us? Can something defeat us? No and no. And if you want to become a Christian, do speak to Kieran. He'd love to help you through that. But can suffering defeat us now? Can it separate us? Because suffering and death have always been a normal part of the human existence. In fact, centuries ago, they used to, in the 1600s, they used to publish around London this great thing called bills of mortality. And they'd list uh, all the different kinds of death that had happened that week in, uh, in, in, in London. And they're, very, they're, they're brilliant. So here they are, bills of mortality. These are kept in the British Museum, I think, or the Medical Society. And on the right there, it just lists how everyone had died. It was a bit like in the early days of COVID, when it was good, how many have caught it, how many have died from it, things like that. And the news every day. And so there's some brilliant ones in there. Uh, what, three people died of just frighted, just... Scared, literally scared to death uh, these guys were then you've got 42 died of childbed which I initially thought maybe an infant had died in their childbed I actually think it was 42 dads constructing an Ikea bed on their own and then had got, had got collapsed underneath it uh, one guy had was burnt in his bed by a candle at St Giles's Cripplegate which is not what you want on your church advertising board is it that A someone died by candle but B that there's beds inside the church 
uh, because the sermons are that dull. Um, uh, 121 people died of teeth. That's just the only cause of death, just teeth, whether they're eating each other or themselves. Uh, it's something to be feared, uh, dying of teeth. And then one guy just died suddenly. That was just... Just, just gone. Oh, where's, uh, where's Doris this week? She, she got the suddenly. Uh, she, and that was what happened. Suffering and death have always been a natural part of, of the human existence. It's an amazing list, and Paul seems to have an almost similar one here. In verse 35, who all separates from the love of Christ? Hardships, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, teeth, it, what, all the... And as we read Paul listing these, these options of what might separate us from the love of Christ, we wonder, is he just an ivory tower academic? A, a learned professor of suffering who writes papers on these things? Or is it a bit like the Bill of Mortality where he's listing the suffering of others? No, as we read the rest of the New Testament, and 2 Corinthians 11 in particular, we read of all that Paul has suffered for the gospel the unbelievable amount that he has experienced and as he has suffered personally for Christ. So as he writes, it's not as an academic or as a medical profession, but personally. And then he shares Psalm 44, that first reading. And he says, verse 36, as it's written, for your sake we have been killed all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. So he says, it's not just us now, but them then. It happened in the Old Testament too. So it's not just Paul, but God's people through the ages have experienced suffering for the sake of Christ. And anyone who's stood for Christ for any length of time, even in Perth, will have experienced the truth that being a Christian is both better and harder than not. Which in fact makes our, our question so much more pressing. Can suffering separate us from the love of Christ? No, verse 37 comes Paul's final answer. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. No, someone cannot accuse us. No, something cannot defeat us. No, suffering cannot separate us from the love of Christ. So how does Paul have such certainty in the face of such hurt, such suffering, such pain? Because Paul says it will be hard. The rest of the chapter screams at it. It it describes, chapter 8, how we're groaning as Christians. How the world is groaning. How even the spirit is groaning. But Paul seems to be grinning. And he still is certain that God loves us. There are real difficulties in life for Paul and for us. And so it is going to take real theology to battle it. Real Bible work. Because in the same way, we're not going to understand astrophysics just by singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. We aren't going to grow through sermonettes. We won't have certainty without some real Bible work. So where do we start to know that God loves me? Do we start from a good world? Do we sit at the Cottesloe Beach and we watch the beautiful sunset. It's a good world, a wonderful sunset. Is that where we start? Because then the shark alarm goes off and it's cold and the wind picks up and sand gets in our face and a seagull comes and nicks your fish and chips. 
If we rely just on a good world, sure, it makes us feel good, but if the good world turns bad as it has these last 18 months, then we begin to feel bad and wonder, does God really love us anymore? Well, rather than a good world, perhaps we look to our good works to know that God loves me. I went to church. I helped with the refreshments. I gave money to a good cause. I was the preacher. Surely God must love me. But then the good works don't last. And we wondered, did we actually just do those good works so that others would see? Because there was that one time I did something good and no one saw. And I got really annoyed that no one saw. And I wondered if I could do it again so that others would see it. And perhaps those good works actually weren't that good. And so I don't feel so good anymore. And if the good works turn bad, we feel bad and begin to wonder, maybe God doesn't love me anymore if I'm relying on good works. Perhaps we turn to our worries to know if God loves me. I have no worries in life, so he must love me. You know, there's water in the taps, there's health care in the hospitals, money flowing out of the mines. So God must love me. But on an international scale, it's terribly insensitive. As our missionaries out there shouldn't even bother with their work. Because God only loves those who have no worries in life. So they should just come home and enjoy life here. No, we shouldn't look to our worries, to a good world or our good works, to know that God loves me. It just won't be stable. In fact, our hope isn't rooted in the fact that God loves me at all. I know we tell it to our children. God loves you. We maybe mutter it to ourselves. God loves me. Or we sum up the gospel. God loves me. But this passage has to make us rethink of that as the root of our certainty. Our hope, our assurance, our certainty comes not from the fact that God loves me, but that God loved me. That he loved me. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I've taken much solace in the last few days knowing not that God loves me now in my present circumstance, but that he loved me then as his son was nailed to a cross. A love that's not dependent on the world, my works or my worries. Instead, a love based on his son's words and work and wounds. A love that isn't seen or always felt in the heart, but a love that is known in history. That as we look at that Easter, that is going to be the certainty we need to know he loves me because he loved me. And as we put those gospel glasses on so we can look at that moment, We know he loves us because he loved us. And we have to put the gospel glasses on now in the light when it's easy. Otherwise we'll never find those gospel glasses in the dark when it's hard. No one can accuse us. No sin can defeat us. No suffering can separate us from the love of Christ. I know he loves St. Philip's Cottesloe, writes Paul, because he loved St. Philip's Cottesloe, writes Paul. And he proved he loved me. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know he loves us inseparably. 
because he loved us. In fact, says Paul, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, this is too good for our minds to hold. Will it therefore fill our hearts and our lives this week? Knowing that you loved us in your Son. In whose name we pray. Amen.